Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Tuesday, March 21st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. And today will be another interview all about, or a couple of interviews all about lessons learned during the pandemic. I haven't touched on it so much, save for last week on the Antoine Tig and the week before I talked a little bit about the Corcoran results, but we haven't been checking in as much about what we've learned because we've been learning it. So, Yesterday, we had David Zweig, and today we will have two journalists, actually a journalist and an epidemiologist, who have been covering these issues closely. So first up is Michael Schulson. He's a contributing editor for Undark, which is an excellent publication. In fact, he has written for NPR, the Pacific Standard, Scientific American, Slate, and Wired, among other publications. We're going to concentrate really deep dive on the conclusions or lack of conclusions or proper conclusions about the big mask study that Cochrane did and other non-RCT studies. Hey, what's RCT? You're going to know by the end. And then after we talk to Shulson, we'll be joined by Caitlin Jettalina. She is your local epidemiologist. She does that by training, by vocation. She also has a highly subscribed to Substack, and we'll be getting into many other COVID lessons. And really, what's the best way of learning lessons and talking about this? All right, Shulson's up first. For the next conversation, you don't have to know about r naught. you don't have to know about K, you don't have to know about hashtag droplet dogma, you don't have to know about the difference between effectiveness and efficacy. Well, going in, maybe you'll know about some of this on the way out. The question is and has been, and the one we've been exploring is, what did that big Corcoran mask study mean? And even beyond Corcoran masks, mask mandates, do they work if not why? Can we make them work? If so, how? Michael Schulson is a contributing editor for Undark. He has written about this issue. Undark's a uh, really good publication for interesting, not going to use the word takes, analysis of science issues and other issues in the news. His article in Undark, Do Masks Work? It's a question of physics, biology, and behavior. Indeed it is. Hello, Michael. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Wrong question in the headline, isn't it? I mean, if we really want to get down to what the uh, Cochrane study was saying. Yeah, it's not quite the question, do masks work? I think the, the study, the, the Cochrane question is something like, do randomized controlled trials of mask use or respirator use, and those are different things which we can talk about, show that they like reduce somebody's odds of catching COVID-19 or other viruses in certain contexts? And the answer to that, they said, is probably not. And... Um, if you really like dig into the nuts and bolts of what they're saying, they do have those lines saying, based on the evidence that we've put together here, we are uncertain that masks or respirators like N95s are effective in these contexts. Now, whether they conveyed that in a way that people were actually particularly ready to understand is not that clear. Yeah, but they tried to, in a follow-up clarification, or at least Zenyep Tefeki got in touch with the editor, right. and she made clear, we're not saying masks don't work. We're saying there's no evidence that mask mandates have worked. Right. And and I, and I, I do think, I mean, if, again, if you like dig into the nuts and bolts of the report and you're reading really far into it, I think they, they are saying that, but a lot of that gets lost very, very quickly. And 
um, you know, when the headline finding of something seems to be masks aren't that effective, those are the words that people are going to grab onto, even mm-hmm. if once you kind of dig into the fine print, there's a little bit more going on. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about RCTs, and we understand why they might be the gold standard, and I think we also understand why the real world doesn't use RCTs as the way it evaluates evidence. Uh, we know that smoking's bad for a number of reasons, but RCTs wasn't one of them because we didn't put cigarettes in someone's mouth every day who wasn't a smoker beforehand. That said, would you say, or from your survey of the experts, is there a consensus that in this case, RCTs are really beside the point or more of a consensus are they are one tool, but you'd be silly to ignore the non-RCT studies? Yeah, I think it's more the latter, that there is a sense that RCTs maybe can be useful, but taking them as the sole form of evidence is maybe not a great idea. I mean, my sense is that this is actually an issue that Cochrane themselves are kind of thinking through right now, right? Cochrane is this big network of researchers all around the world kind of doing their own things under the unified banner of Cochrane. And um, there there seems to be some conversation, as far as I can tell, within that world of, do we rely too much on RCTs in some of these analyses? And is there... Like when we're talking, you know, when you're doing an RCT to try to understand whether a drug works to do a very specific thing in a very specific context, that might be a really, really great tool. When you're trying to do an RCT to understand some kind of complex behavioral intervention, does it work as well? Or are there more things that we need to be keeping sort of keeping in mind when trying to figure this out? Right. So as Cochrane's thinking about it, I think there was a lot of good um, information surrounding the controversy, shall we call that, about the Cochrane review. And many people did point to there are a lot of real world studies that show that masks are not just efficacious, but effective. I want to go through what you found about that literature. There are studies showing that, right? Yeah. So there's this whole group of studies that basically do, they take advantage of a kind of natural experiment, which is during the pandemic, you had some places putting in mask mandates, some places really encouraging masks. And some places that were doing that less. And so what you can do afterward is you can go in and try to say, okay, did the places that put in the mask mandates seem to have lower rates of COVID, lower rates of COVID hospitalization, lower rates of COVID mortality compared to really, really, really similar places in a lot of respects that for whatever reason didn't put in a mask mandate or didn't have some way of really encouraging masking. And When you do those studies, they they differ a little bit. There's a a range of responses, but most of those have tended to find that there is some effect from having a mask mandate in place. There's some way in which that dampens COVID-19 transmission. Now, is that necessarily because of the masks? It's a little bit hard to tell for sure from this kind of study, but it's it's one thing that you might reasonably conclude from these studies is that we might expect that, okay, the masks, or at least the mask mandates, seem to be doing something. Right. But what Tom Jefferson would say, and I think it's not a bad point, is that the reason RCTs are the gold standards is it controls for the confounding variables. And with the real life experiments about mandates, there are confounding variables, other things that might have influenced transmission. And the big thing is what I've seen described as the healthy patient effect, the certain kind of person who would live in a place with a mask mandate and vote in a governor or a, um, you know, mayor who would impose a mask mandate, right, is the sort of person who would follow a mask mandate would probably also be the sort of person who might adhere to a lockdown and keep a social distance, you know, do all the things the CDC says. Once you factor that in, the studies, I don't want to throw them out. They seem to indicate something, but that's the grain of salt, right? 
Right, absolutely. I mean, these confounds are really, really, really hard to control for, right? And and some studies try this, right? So for example, I looked at a study of US counties that did put in mask mandates at a particular time in, in, in the pandemic versus those that did not. And one of the things they tried to control for, for example, was political affiliation. So they're comparing counties that voted for Trump in 2016 at a certain rate to counties in the same region that voted for Trump at a similar rate to try to kind of capture some of that. But are there other confounds? Are there other things potentially going on here that are explaining that effect? Absolutely, right? And so it can be hard to say for sure. We definitely know that the masks were what caused this outcome. Even though you can say, look, we see this association in the data and it, it looks pretty strong. Right. I, I want to know, do you think that we could do the thing where we say some studies say this and some say that. Is the vast preponderance of the studies showing big effects or uh, statistically significant effects for mandates, or are they more scattered than that? You know, th there have been researchers who have tried to get at that question by doing meta-analyses of Which these studies. What Cochrane did, right? Right, right. So they do sort of, the, right, exactly, sort of the thing that Cochrane did, but they're doing it instead of for RCTs, they're doing it for this kind of study where you're kind of comparing counties or comparing cantons or whatever. And several of those have found that when you pull all this data together into one place, you're still seeing a positive effect from mask mandates. You're still seeing something good happening. Um, you know, there, there's always the possibility, and not to like both sides this, right? But there's always the possibility that there is some kind of systematic problem in these studies that's, that's there. The other thing, and I've seen Tom Jefferson and others bring this up, right, is a fear that because there's something a little bit squishier about like playing with data in this way, it's a little bit easier basically for researchers to even unintentionally kind of read their assumptions into the data or in some way kind of push things in the direction that they expect. Um, yeah. And so, you know, there, 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 there remains this mindset that even we'll look at those meta-analyses and say, okay, maybe, I'm not so sure. Um, but certainly when you kind of pull those studies together, you can often see uh, that the, the mandates seem to be doing something. But if we compare those studies to studies of vaccine uh, rates and vaccination, there's just no comparison. In other words, vaccines work. Almost every good study shows that vaccines work and brings down uh, COVID rates. And it doesn't even matter if there are confounding variables with vaccinations. They just work, work, work. And the statistical significance is way beyond question. I mean, I think, and, and like vaccines are a good, are, right, are a great comparison here, because that's something where you can see it in the big studies, right? You can see it in these kind of big observational studies that are comparing big groups of people. You can see it in the RCTs. When you do randomized controlled trials looking at vaccination, like, you could, they, it works, right? Like, people are less likely to get sick, they're less likely to get severely ill. Um, and you can see that kind of in the, the mechanistic, in the lowest level. If you actually watch the way that a shot is moving through, like the way that this mRNA shots are working in a person's body, there is a scientific reason to expect them to work, right? And with masks, the picture's more complicated. There's a, at the level of an individual looking at that mechanistic stuff, there's a reason to expect that they might be effective. If you look at the really big picture stuff, there's a reason to expect something is happening there. And if you look at the RCTs, that's where the picture gets a little bit murkier. Yeah. Yeah. So RCTs may be the worst. I don't know the worst, but the uh, highest threshold for establishing proof, which doesn't mean like they either things either work or don't. And it doesn't matter like if something works. And if you have a very rigorous study that's so rigorous that it won't pick up that it works, it doesn't mean that the study's really good. It just means that you have standards that working the these the idea of working or the idea of efficacy won't uh, won't be picked up by that study. 
Right. Plus, we got, plus, there's an ethical issue here, which also makes studying this harder, right? Which is we can't, you know, the ideal maybe would be, I'm just kind of making this up, but you take a college campus, you put a few hundred people there, you have some of them mask and some of them not, and then you intentionally give some of them COVID and like watch what happens, right? Um, that might be a really, really interesting and really informative study that would help to resolve some of the questions in this. And the ethics of actually going out and giving some of those people COVID and then exposing them all to the virus makes that hard, right? And my, my point here is just that doing That would RCTs, be known as a challenge trial? It would be, yeah, it'd be known as a challenge trial. And there have, there's been at least one challenge trial with COVID in a much more limited uh, context, but doing that is really tough. The ethics of that are really complicated. And it's not the kind of thing that's necessarily so easy to do with something like masks, right? So part of, part of the backdrop for this conversation, and this is true for, a, I think, a lot of these kinds of big vexing scientific questions that get litigated in the public sphere, like part of the problem also, not necessarily a problem, but part of the challenge is that even if you can imagine the perfect study that would solve the problem, you might not ethically be able to do it. Right. Although, you know, Jefferson says it's not unethical because he thinks masks don't work. So denying someone masks is like, who cares? They don't work. Sure. Sure. Some <laughs> yeah. of, and and this, is, this has been a dispute. I mean, some of these, some, some, some of the studies that were included in the Cochrane Review, some of the big RCTs here give some people N95 respirators and other people surgical masks, for example. And there have been criticisms of those studies. People saying we have enough evidence already that N95s are more effective than surgical masks such that, you know, denying healthcare workers access to N95s in the pandemic is unethical. I mean, that, that is a dispute that's, that's come up and that scientists are, are, are hashing out. That's, that's part of this whole big, messy mask conversation. Mm. Let me ask you about specifically, I don't know, I didn't see this in your article, but maybe you looked into this. Do you know about the big Bangladesh study that was part of the Cochrane's trial. And yeah. so in this one, and the authors of this study wrote articles in the Washington Post and the New York Times, and they were headlined, we conducted the largest study on masks and COVID-19. They work. And they also say in the Washington Post version, to the extent that there was still a debate about masking, it should be over. D did your reading of the study show that? It's a great question. I you know, I, I'll make a, like a meta point here, which is I would be cautious of anybody who takes a single randomized controlled trial and says, I have proved this really big, complicated behavioral thing is true or false. Um, and I think that the exist the reason that things like Cochrane exist is partly to kind of pull evidence from multiple sources to try to kind of cut through a reliance on single studies as the way of, of, of basing major decisions. Having yeah. said that, I think you could put, you know, people take this piece of evidence and along with all these other kinds of evidence that they're, that they're accumulating, you know, that may for them come to kind of help build out a picture uh, in which masks seem to be, masks and respirators seem to be effective, uh, at least in, in some contexts and, and, and worth, worth pursuing as a public health strategy. How many sources did you survey about their thoughts on Cochrane, their thoughts on masking and mandates and what they, you know, what they take away from the debate and the study? Uh, just give me a general idea. I probably took around a dozen people for this particular piece. I've, I've like I've, I've had conversations with others. I mean, those aren't the only people I've talked to, but I'd say about a dozen like really in-depth conversations with with experts working in this area. Yeah. So you had a dozen in-depth conversation, and you surveyed data, so you got a sense probably from dozens more of what respected people in the field are thinking about this. Yeah. Okay. So you're a person who. 
I think has is did a lot of work and is pretty well sourced and knows what the field in general, this a field as big and disparate as infectious disease itself. Did they have a dismissive reaction of the Cochrane study? Did they say this thing does not show what the study's authors are purporting it shows? You know, I, I talked to people with a range of perspectives on this, right? I, I would say that most of the people I talked to would not go as far as saying, I don't think there's any evidence that masks work during the pandemic. I, right. I, 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 I don't get the sense that there's the very The study itself didn't go that far. I think, in term, I think in terms of the study's very narrow conclusion that the RCTs that exist don't show a really, really strong effect for masks, I, I, I think people I talked to largely would say... That seems right. And then they'd often put some big qualifier on that seems right. Like that seems right with some big asterisk. Um, but it really comes down to what you think those RCTs are telling you. And that's where there's, among the people I talk to, a real range. But I, I, I do think that that very, very limited conclusion, I think there's, a lot, I talked to a lot of people who said, sure, I think that, strictly speaking, is, is, is true. Mm-hmm. And how many of these people, I don't know how many, but did you get a sense that many of these people just don't mask in their everyday life? I think a lot of people who work on these topics wear masks, right? Yeah, and I, and I, 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 I would say that I, I have talked to very few people, even people who were generally pretty positive about the Cochrane Review. I, I don't think that that many of them are like walking into you know a session with a patient with a suspected case of COVID and leaving their mask behind. I mean, I, I, I think that the idea that at least in some contexts, masks and respirators N95s especially, are, are, are useful in some way, I, I think that there's still a pretty, um, pretty broad sense that that's, that that's true. And what's the consensus on mask mandates at this point forward? Uh, school went back to session in places like Ann Arbor and mm-hmm. uh, Massachusetts, places where they are, it's not hard to uh, convince the public to adhere to a mask mandate. So those are the places that have mask mandates. But is there any sort of expert consensus that you could convey about the effectiveness of these mandates right now in 2023? I think that that's where it gets it gets a lot messier. And I, I think that there's a lot of concern that mask, even if you have a mandate in place, does that actually mean that people are wearing effective masks and respirators or specifically respirators? And are they wearing them um, correctly for most of the day, right? Like, are these mandates actually being implemented and enforced in a way where it's going to be useful? And I, I think there's a lot of skepticism right now that that, that that may be the case. Michael Slauson is the author of Do Masks Work? It's a question of physics, biology, and behavior. He wrote that for Undark. Thank you so much. That was great. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. So it's 2023, COVID-19 was first discovered. They put their finger on it in 2019. You can think that we would be able to go back and say, oh, we've learned a lot. And indeed we have learned a lot, but uh, how much have we learned and have we even learned how much we've learned? One of the best 
studiers of this, one of the best synthesizers of the knowledge that we have, a science communicator, is not just my local epidemiologist, but your local epidemiologist. That is the name of her substack. She's Dr. Caitlin Jetalina. She is indeed an epidemiologist whose goal is to translate ever-evolving public health science. This thing took off. People are desperate for the breakdown of studies, the cutting through the jargon, and that's what Dr. Jetalina provides. Welcome to the gist. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we could talk about many things. Let's start with lab leak. I know you're, I don't know, 70%. What are you saying? There's a 70% chance that it was the lab and 70% chance it was the wet market or seven out of 10 of the first uh, uh, infected pangolins were from the wet market and three out of 10 were from the lab. What are you saying? Yeah, you know, I think this is a question on a lot of people's minds right now. And I don't think we're ever going to find the answer to this. And I think that's the case because the the window of opportunity for critical data is nearly closed. So disproving a lab leak is going to be close to impossible. So I think that in reality, this is another example of false dichotomy. Our opinions are going to range from a scale from natural spillover to lab leak. And yeah, I think I'm about a 70% um, on natural spillover, but um, I'm I'm not 100%. And I think people just need to recognize where they land on this spectrum. Did we screw up originally by anathemizing the lab leak theory as legitimate? I certainly screwed up doing that. Um, I think that I definitely initially dismissed the lab leak because of the original messengers of that message in in early 2020 and because it was wrapped up in other noise and other conspiracy theories. Um, And so so I I do think it was haphazardly initially dismissed. Um, And we, like you said, we can learn from that and, and get better for the future. So you say that disproving the lab leak by now is impossible, but one reason it might be impossible, and I'm not, and I'm not subscribing to this explicitly, but it might be impos- impossible to disprove it because that was the fact that there really was a lab leak. But my question is, let's follow this chain of logic, but wouldn't the Chinese be incentivized to be able to disprove there was a lab leak if that wasn't the case? And therefore, wouldn't the fact that we can't disprove it now because of the evidence indicate that China didn't do all it could do to preserve something that was exonerative? That alone raises my eyebrows. Yeah, and and that's the biggest disappointment, right, is that a pandemic is not individualized to one country and impacts everyone across the world. And so this is where we really, really need coordination and um, teamwork in the beginning of a pandemic to find patient zero. And this is exactly what China didn't do. Um, There's a lot of people arguing against what WHO did or did not do in those first couple months as well. And that will hurt us trying to find the bottom of this because we just won't, we won't have the data. We don't have those animals tested in the wet market. We don't have a lot of information that would help us piece this puzzle together. I would think as to drive policy, deciding it definitely was a lab leak or it well might have been a lab leak, you know, 30% to 70%. 
it shouldn't really affect, maybe it affects the urgency, but it shouldn't change our policies. And our policies should be, we have to be very, very much more careful than we have been about this type of research, maybe even about gain-of-function research at all. Yeah, I think that is really the biggest tragedy right now is that line of thinking has kind of dissipated. I think the big, if we just go out to the 30,000 degree view, I think bottom line is that a spillover can happen, a lab leak can happen, and a lab leak can happen intentionally or unintentionally. And let's focus on all three of those things because this is not going to be the last time it happens. And there's a lot we can do in each three of those categories. And um, I don't want us to lose that important thread um, of, of story and, um, and making our future better. Did Swedish mitigation policies work well for Sweden? You know, I think that it, 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 pro- it worked for Sweden. Um, and I think that a policy works very differently for every different countries. And that's why each country needs to weigh their different cultures, their different um, lines of thinking epidemiologically, their political stance. I mean, policy isn't just based on science. It's based on everything else, too. And so it's really I think I know where you're going is should U.S. go do what Sweden did. And, you know, I think that what Sweden did worked for them. Um, and that Which was just, necessarily... yeah, just remind us, not lockdowns, recommending distancing, not mandates. That's right. So Sweden softer had a touch. Yeah, yeah, it had a very soft touch. Um, didn't recommend lockdowns, like you said, but they did recommend distancing. They had a very strong vaccination campaign, very high vaccination rates. And I think the thing a lot of people forget about is that Sweden also has a very strong social safety net. Um, universal health care, child care, maternity care. Um, and so that no doubt helped as well. Mm-hmm. So actually, I wasn't going there, but let's go. <laughs> let's go there. Why not? In fact, let's bring in the Great Barrington Declaration, which was Stanford, Dr. J. Bhattacharya and others, uh, very credentialed people early on during the pandemic, advised against lockdowns said we need to protect the most vulnerable, meaning in their estimation, the old. And now in retrospect, and they were also, uh, let's be plain about this, uh, somewhat censored for expressing those views. That part of their declaration actually seems sensible in retrospect, but you wrote about and put your finger on a part of their declaration. In fact, the theory underpinning this, which didn't turn out to be true, which was the idea that herd immunity will be rich, uh, will be achieved. That's why they were saying, let's not have la- lockdowns, let's wait for herd immunity. What do you think, what does the evidence show about the Great Barrington Declaration years later? Yeah, so as an epidemiologist, I kind of focus on two different things. Yeah, there's logistical issues with this and ethical, but let's think epidemiologically. Um, one, their underlying theory was that we can shield the vulnerable. Let's let everyone else just live and get infected. Let's shield the vulnerable. The challenge is that the vulnerable is about 40 to 50 percent of the U.S. population. And how do we shield them? Literally, like, how do we do that? Um, Because, for example, nursing care homes have younger nurses 
and um, janitors and really, you know, really viable people for them to be shielded. So first, that's the problem. Second is, yeah, like you said, um, the herd immunity aspect um, that the herd immunity, they thought the herd immunity from infection um, would shield the vulnerable people once everyone got infected. And as we see today, although a large proportion of the population has immunity, older adults are still vulnerable to death. We're still seeing about 500 deaths per day. And so um, while I think the Great Barrington Declaration sounds sexy because we went through a lot during lockdowns, um, especially schools being closed, it just it wouldn't have worked. And there there would have been a whole lot more death because of it. And um, we can't lose sight of that. Do you think from the perspective of a science communicator, so not just a wonk, but this is what you do, this is your superpower, that, and, and you're worried about disinformation, of course, that the way that it was treated on platforms like Twitter wound up being um, counterproductive? Yeah, I struggle with this a lot because you're right. There disinformation, so the malicious intent to send out disinformation is a massive problem right now. And it's impacting not just COVID-19, but measles and polio. And we're starting to see it dissipate. Um, I don't know what the solution to that is, though. Uh, one solution that Twitter, for example, takes is that we should just start blocking people from talking. But another solution that other people are taking, like Substack, where my newsletter is, is let's just let people talk it out. And I I kind of like that approach of letting people talk it out because you're you're not people are going to go other places to start talking. And I, as a scientific communicator, really need to know what others are talking about and thinking about so we can anticipate those concerns, come from a place of empathy and be proactive in communication, certainly during an emergency. So I don't I don't know if that's a the right answer that you're looking for, but I, I don't know what the solution is. And I think that we need to be innovative in thinking how we have these kinds of discussions um, and how we distill it for the community to understand what a scientific discussion is versus misinformation versus disinformation. Okay, let's talk about another nuance. And this is the uh, section of the interview where, (laughs) I don't know if you're game for this, but we are going to steel man Aaron Rodgers' objections. So Aaron Rodgers, and he stands in for a lot of people. He didn't take the vaccine and he was dishonest about it. And he gave reasons that he was allergic to um, a certain form of the vaccine out there. They're not all the vaccines. And what he said was, I'm a young, healthy individual. I've done my own research. And the chances of me being affected by COVID are much, much, much smaller than the chances of me being affected by the vaccine. And I'm a professional athlete and I have to take this all into account. So again, we're steel manning his objections. There was a, and you could talk about any of that, but there was a counter objection that I thought he had no answer to, but I wonder about the state of that now. The counter argument is, doesn't matter, Aaron, it doesn't matter what your perceptions are for your health. By taking the vaccine, you help me and my grandma and everyone else, because when you get the vaccine, you lower the chances of the virus being transmitted to others, you as a vector for contagion. I want to know how true is that? What do the studies show? 
Yeah. So right when Aaron Rodgers was talking about that, was talking about the primary series. So we're we're talking early 2021 and early 2020. And I think the timeline's important because the vaccine and the virus has changed since. So in early 2021, when the vaccines rolled out, the vaccines did an incredible, we were blown away of how well the vaccines did to prevent infection and transmission. It was about 90%, um, which is was way higher than we were expecting, honestly. Um, and so in the beginning, yeah, that, that was a big part of it. Now, the virus did mutate um, over the next two years to become better and better at escaping our immunity. And so today, um, the vaccine still stops transmission as well as infection, um, stops transmission for about the first five months. We're not really entirely sure. But once it goes down um, past that initial timeline, there, there really isn't much protection against transmission. Yeah. And I have read studies about the uh, Delta variant and they are the most annoying studies to read because they are studies on SARS-CoV-2, SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome. But these studies talk about SARS secondary attack rates. So it's the SARS of the SARS and they're extremely hard to understand. But it does seem that when it comes to Delta, um, the transmission part of it is very, I mean, some of these studies, the one I read in The Lancet says that it's maybe a small imperfect sample size, but it doesn't show no effect. It just shows a very small effect in terms of dampening transmission. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's one thing we got wrong. And if we go back to the first question is that we didn't, one, anticipate how quickly the virus would be changing. And two, I think we got the messaging around the vaccine wrong because when the virus changed, the primary purpose of that vaccine ultimately changed. Right now, the purpose of the vaccine is to prevent severe disease and death. Yeah, there are secondary pros like prevention of long COVID and prevention of transmission, maybe a little, but that that's not the primary reason. Yeah. And what was, as you recall it, what would you say the original messaging was? I think the original messaging was something like, once you get the vaccine, we'll all be able to go back to normal. Is that what you're talking about? The original messaging of the vaccine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I even wrote, I, I, I mean, I look back at my post, Den, and I'm like, hey, if you get your vaccine, you can finally hug your grandma. And, I th- you know, that's true. It was true. But I think that um, we needed to do a much better job of one, anticipating how quickly coronaviruses mutate and to um, not putting all of our eggs in a basket with vaccines. It, it wasn't the the cure to this pandemic. And I don't think it will ever be without second generation vaccines. And as far as masking, just if you're comfortable telling me this, when you go out in public or when you go to a crowded indoor space, do you mask? I do. Um, And mainly because a lot of where I'm at with crowded indoors is airplanes and and airports. And it usually means I'm either going on vacation. I don't want to get sick on vacation or I'm going to a work event, which I also don't want to get sick on. So plus your work events are other epidemiologists. So you won't get any side eye for that. Yeah, you don't know. These days um, it's different. But, you know, like if I'm going to a concert and having a beer, I am. I don't have a mask on, um, and I'm singing loud, and I'm really enjoying it. But I think that 
the the risks and benefits always have to be outweighed on the individual level, especially now that not many people are doing it anymore. Caitlin Jetalina writes the Substack and is, in fact, your local epidemiologist. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer of The Gist is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is Peach Fish Productions Vice President of Sunshine State Affairs. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, Peru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>